Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project. I started this project during Black History Month of 2022 because I wanted to provide a platform for Black Americans to share their stories about living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also wanted to provide a space for people to memorialize someone who is a Black American who sadly lost their life during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was inspired by the work of Zora Neale Hurston, author and anthropologist, to record the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. My goal is to get my recordings into museums such as the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, or the Schomburg, or the Library of Congress's Folklife Museum. I'll share a little bit about me and my family history, and then I'll speak to my guests. I'm a Black American. My dad was African American and Indigenous American. His ancestors were enslaved in Georgia. In fact, we still have our family's slave name, which is Kilbrew. My dad, Dr. Terrence Kilbrew, met my mom in graduate school at the New School in New York when they were both earning their master's degrees in psychology. And I'm a fourth generation teacher. So my mother is a retired New York City teacher. My grandmother was a teacher on the island of Jamaica for 20 years and then in New York for 20 years. My great-grandmother was a teacher in Jamaica up until she got married. She was the daughter of an Irish woman and a black man. She stopped working after she got married because it wasn't considered respectable for a married woman to continue working in the late 1800s. And ironically, my mother began teaching long after she got married in the late 1900s. So, Without further ado, I'm excited to speak with my guest today. My name is Tony Ann Johnson, and I am originally from upstate New York, but uh, Monroe, New York, but I have been in LA for 30 years, so I guess I'm from here now. And I live in South Los Angeles in an area called Manchester Square. Um, which is kind of near the new stadium. It's east of the new football, the new NFL stadium and the forum um, and borders Inglewood. Uh, it's a black community. And I bought my house here in 2003 and I've oh. been here since then. So I've been here quite a while. <laughs> Congratulations, it's wonderful. And, and do you identify as black or African-American or how do you identify? I do identify as black. This is a, so this is a story. So um, I identify as African-American and both my parents identified as African-American. However, my mother, as it turned out, um, is biracial, but I didn't know that until I was an adult. So my mother was adopted um, and she was raised by a Jamaican family. The, the, my grandfather was Jamaican um, and my grandmother was raised in South Carolina. And those that's who I knew as my grandparents, but they're not my biological grandparents. Um, my dad is identifies, identified, he's passed as, um, as African-American, 
and his mother was biracial. She was from Bermuda and her father was white. He was um, English, supposedly English. I've done my DNA and I think he actually was Scottish because I have more Scottish blood than anything than, in, than English. But um, he was white and her mother um, was of African descent and some mixed race, but I don't know specifically um, what. Uh, but it looks like most of my African DNA is from Nigeria. Um, and I have Ashkenazi Jew. My, my mother's father, biological father was Jewish, but I, I didn't know that um, until I was, I was in college when she told me that. Um, and her mother was Jamaican, but very clearly Nigerian, because that's what the DNA shows. I did um, Ancestry and 23andMe, and recently Ancestry is now able to show you exactly what you got from each parent. So that's kind of a, a new feature. So I'm able to see that I got this much Ashkenazi Jew from my um, grandfather, biological grandfather, and this much Nigerian from my biological grandmother. And there's also some Nigerian on my dad's side as well. Um, so that I have most of it, most of the African is Nigerian, which is so exciting because I, that I didn't know until pretty recently. And I've been to a few countries in Africa, but never to Nigeria. So that's something that I want to explore. Um, yeah, so I am technically mixed. So I have a, as much white Euro European blood as black, but I, but I don't identify as a mixed race person, although I look like a mixed race person, um, I identify as African-American. I grew up in an all white area where I was routinely called the N-word. And so I'm black <laughs> and I now live in, an, in a mostly black, also some Latinx area and it's gentrifying. So there's white people here too. But when I bought my house, it was mostly black and Latinx. Thank you for sharing that. I, I also, I haven't, no, no, that's a, because I was going to ask you what's your ancestry. So thank you for expounding. Okay. No, no. I love hearing about people's ancestry. Mm -hmm. And now, so now I'm excited to hear about what it was like for you living and working during the pandemic, especially because you're on the West Coast. Like, what was that like? And if you want to start, I know you're a natural storyteller. So if you want to start in 2020 and just um, go through. Okay, yeah. So in 2020, I was teaching at USC. Um, I think I was, I think I had two classes a week. Um, so I was going to campus, which uh, I don't live that far from USC. It's like six miles, but I was on campus and then I didn't know what zoom was, <laughs> but like all of a sudden it was like, okay, this Wednesday, we're going to teach, we're going to teach on zoom. And I was like, what zoom? And I had to learn that really fast. And for a writing class, Zoom was wonderful. It was it was just as easy in, to for me to teach on Zoom as it was to teach in person. Be, and, and in some ways, it was even better because I could actually see everyone at once, and I could see how everybody was responding to notes or to other people's work or who was paying attention and who was you know just joking around and. Um, I really liked it. So I enjoyed um, teaching on Zoom and I did it for the spring semester of 2020. And then I did the fall semester of 2021. And, then, and I got a, 
I, I'm not sure even how to, you would think it was a promotion. So I, so I was teaching undergraduates for a couple of years. And then at one point I got asked to teach graduate students. And so in my mind, and I, I was teaching for like three years and I'm, in my mind, that's a promotion. You're asked, you know, you, I'm teaching in the, the undergrad and now I'm teaching like the MFA students. So I asked for a raise and, and then they, um, they came back and said no raise. And I did one more semester and then I was like, bye. Like <laughs> I just quit. Like um, it wasn't that much, you know, I wasn't well paid and I worked so hard. I worked mm -hmm. so, so hard. So I would spend, if necessary, hours with each student's work. And I mm -hmm. had um, 12 students in, in a class. So I, I would break them up. And so usually like the most I would have for one class would be like six scripts a week um, in one class. And then the other class was uh, a short film class so those wouldn't take me as long but but it but for my screenwriting students who are writing features I would spend as long as it took to get through their scripts and to tell them everything I thought they needed to know and so I was spending way too much time on uh, you know each student was getting a lot of individual attention on the page and I really you know when I did the numbers like I was not making much money at all. Like I was making like $5 an hour because I was being paid for $10 per class, but it was taking me at least 20 hours each class. So it was like a full-time job for me. And I just couldn't do it anymore unless they paid me more and they didn't want to pay me anymore. So I bounced and um, I had the best year. So the, I, I stopped teaching the, I did not teach for the spring semester of, um, I guess it was, 2021 and um or I don't know I'm confused I mean maybe it was the beginning of you know now it's 2022 it must have been like the spring semester 2021 I taught the fall 2020 and then whatever but I had the best six months like when I did not teach I did mm -hmm. I accomplished so so much so I didn't teach so I focused on my writing a book that I wrote that I had developed for five years um, as a novel with an agent, went out and didn't sell within the first couple of months of those years. And I was devastated because I had spent so much time. I did everything she asked me to do and it didn't sell. But I never liked that version of the book and I never thought it was a novel. I had always intended for it to be a short story collection. Mm -hmm. And so the Flannery O'Connor Award was coming up and I looked at at the book that hadn't sold. And I just pulled out stories that I didn't think were necessary for what I would have to submit for the Flannery O'Connor Award because it was a 75,000 word uh, limit. And so I pulled everything out and I put it back together and I sent the book in and I won. And so that came with publication. And so my book is coming out um, in October. So it was, a, it was like, you know, it was like extreme highs and lows, but I, but I, that was such a great uh, win for me because I had been so depressed. And also I had another book come out. Um, in fact, uh, my, my novella Homegoing came out within that six months that I wasn't teaching too. This is a, a short book and it's connected to, so this was the last story in the long book that I developed with the agent and it didn't fit 
So I, I wasn't able to include it in the new, in the book that I submitted to the Flannery O'Connor Award. So I'm glad that it got published on its own, <laughs> um, but it's the same characters. So Homegoing is these same characters years later. So the, the Flannery O'Connor Award winning book is called Light Skin Gone to Waste and it's short stories, autobiographical short stories. So they're based on my family. That title. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a poet also? Um, I was. I, I Well, I can't say that I was a poet. I used to do poetry back in the 90s. I did. Um, I was part of a group called the Street Poet Society here in L.A. And we used to perform art. So it was like performance poetry. So I never took a poetry class. I would not say that I am a good poet, um, but I can write something fun to perform that is in a sort of a poem form but I, I I stopped doing that and I I I was writing screenplays and then um went into fiction but I so my poetry career was like a couple of years in the in the early 90s and then once I I started working as a screenwriter I did not write another poem Oh. Um, <laughs> I did like I wrote screenplays and then I went back to graduate school to get an MFA in creative writing and then I left I stopped writing screenplays and I started writing fiction that title lights can gone to waste like that sounds like a spoken word poem it's a great title oh thank you yeah I, I had heard somebody say that and I remembered my family had that idea about me when I was a kid. So I was light skinned with long hair, but at, but when I was 13, I got tired of trying to look like the white girls I grew up with. So I was growing up in an all white environment and I cut all my hair off and had a short Afro. And I also had gone with my relatives <laughs> to the Caribbean, to Barbados and I got a tan. And I remember my grandfather saying, just like shaking his head and saying, well, you look like everybody else around here now. And I just remember like there was just such, there was such an attitude towards, you know, there was so much colorism like within the family because there were light skinned people in the family and brown skinned people in the family. And I was light, but I was encouraged to stay light. And uh, in fact, when I was a little girl, I remember my mother putting a clothespin on my nose and having me wear a clothespin because she wanted to train my nose to be thinner. Um, I did not put that in the book, but I should have. Um, but there's just, just so much silly attitude, like white supremacist attitudes about us, you know, that we inflict upon ourselves. That, Maybe, hopefully not so much now, but when I was a child, um, my Caribbean family was very color conscious. Um, so I, uh, I'm sort of poking fun at that idea, but it's also looking at the, the idea of light skin gone to waste. There's one story where it's literally like somebody says that to a character because she's cut her hair short, um, but it's also about this family, this, this light-skinned couple who move to an all-white area and try to assimilate into that area. And I'm not sure that 
they are conscious of it, but from my perspective, there was a, a bit of a loss there. There was a, a loss of community, a loss of being around one's own culture, trying to fit into this other culture. Um, and the character based on me bears the brunt of most of the racism in the town because as parents, and uh, you know, my dad was highly educated, he could curate his relationships within the town with other professionals, and they could socialize with, with people who were not going to call them the N-word to their face. Mm -hmm. As a child who they put in public school with, with the children of parents who maybe only went to high school, were not highly educated, were not sophisticated, uh, and were racist, I got called the N-word all the time. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, what's so great about like, about that? What's so great about that? Like my, my parents both wanted to leave black communities. And as I told you, I now live in one. I bought my house here. Um, but, but some people, you know, wanted to, to leave that. There were, you know, it, it certainly wasn't utopia in these, in these communities, but my in the way that my parents acted it was like there was that was the only choice like we either either live in the ghetto or we live here <laughs> and that's not true like they're middle class black communities and yeah. I wish I had had the opportunity to grow up in one of those but this was the choice that my parents made and and the book is kind of looking at the consequences um, of those choices and you know how it affected their relationship how it affected me. Um, you know, was that a good use <laughs> of this so-called, you know, advantage of having light skin? Um, it wasn't an advantage to me, although I guess I can't really say that because I don't know how differently I would have been treated, but I was still treated like an outsider um, mm -hmm. like the, and the N-word, um, despite how light I am. So, Wow. Wow. I'm excited to read your book. Well, thanks. All your books. Wow. Well, and, and during the pandemic, did you go shopping in person or did you order or what was that like there? Um, I We did a combination of both. So I, I live with a partner and he ordered from Whole Foods and I went to Trader Joe's. So I would basically like be in almost a hazmat suit, <laughs> like two masks. I had... I had at one point I had a shield. I wore, you know, latex gloves. Like I was terrified. Like in the beginning, we didn't know like really how you got it. So I was like, oh, like I had to like come in and take all my clothes off. We both put the groceries outside for a while. Like we wiped down all the groceries. I mean, we were like extreme. Um, and we never, neither of us got COVID to my knowledge. Like we might've had it and not known, but neither of us ever got sick. But um, he's, and we still do that pretty much. So I go to Trader Joe's, he orders from Amazon Fresh or, or Whole Foods or whatever. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know, for whatever reason, I just never got into the ordering stuff online. Um, so I prefer to go to the store. There's some other um, grocery stores in the area that I went to too during that time. And we would, line up and I would try to get there early but you couldn't go like too early because then you'd be impinging on infringing on the senior citizens time so I would try to mm -hmm. go right after that um because I figured it was like the least contaminated at that point and I would hold my breath if I saw somebody without a mask <laughs> like I was totally terrified 
and I still wear a mask though. I, even though they've dropped the mask mandate here, I still wear a mask when I go to the grocery store. Um, I wear a mask at the gym sometimes too, but right now, um, almost nobody's wearing masks when, when I go out in LA, um, very, very few people, but I, I don't mind. I don't care. I, I'll continue to do it. Um, I, mm -hmm. I have both, I have two boosters. <laughs> I, I just really don't want to get COVID for whatever reason. Yeah. I'm just like really, really trying, trying my best to avoid getting it. Um, Absolutely. Because in the beginning, we didn't, like you said, we didn't know how it was spreading. And I think, I, I mean, I was wiping down my groceries with bleach also. Yeah. And, right. And a lot of people were like, before they entered their house, they were taking off their outside clothes. And yeah. then, yeah. yeah. I was really freak. I mean, we were all freaking out because it felt yeah. like the end of the world, right? <laughs> it felt like, oh, this is it. I guess this is how it ends. You know, <laughs> I'm curious, in, in California, when did all the restaurants and bars start closing? Was that in March of 2020? Um, yeah, there was like a curfew and um, uh, Governor Newsom did like, and, and the mayor um, both uh, implemented some kind of like a, a mandatory, like everything closed for, for a period of time. And then I think briefly reopened, I think, and then closed again. So my gym was closed for a while. Um, I didn't even consider going to a restaurant, but, but then restaurants were open for takeout. Um, and, and that was, thank God, because they would have all gone out of business. But um, I don't remember exactly the, uh, the dates of, of how that was, but there was definitely a period of lockdown here where like you, you were, it was recommended or you weren't supposed to like be out after a certain hour. So the streets were really quiet. There was like no, like usually there's a lot of like um, smog in LA and you can't always like see uh, skies were clear. Like it was really quiet. Um, it was, it was eerie, but it, but it was oddly nice. Like it was nice, like not, not having so much traffic. And it was just like, it was just strange. It was strange and different. It was so different, um, but it's pretty, it's back to normal now. I mean, everybody's out and. Yeah. Oh, and I also like to ask, could you describe a 24 hour day? Like what you did in the morning, afternoon and evening, since there wasn't really anywhere to go. So because I couldn't go to the gym, I didn't want to get fat. And um, my partner's really into fitness too. Um, I did gain weight though in the beginning, but uh, he gave me a weighted vest. And I, I subscribed to Libby, the Libby app, which is um, an audiobook, um, free, free audiobook app we borrow from the library. So I would set my timer for an hour, put on the weight vest, and I would, this was so sad, but I would just walk from one end of my house to the other, back and forth while listening to an audiobook and wearing this weight, weight vest. And I would do that like every day. And sometimes I do it in the morning, sometimes I would do it in the evening, but that was like, I did that every day and I tried to do 40 push-ups and I hated it so much. I tried to do push-ups and planks and I just would, I, I never, I never got to the point where I enjoyed either push-ups or planks, but I did my best to try to just stay in shape. But in the beginning of the pandemic, we were like hoarding food and 
eating was one of the pleasures that we could continue to enjoy. And so I overate. And so I, like, I, one day I looked in the mirror, even though I was doing this walk and I looked in the mirror and I was like, I'm fat. <laughs> so I, and I hadn't weighed myself. So I weighed myself and I was like 10 pounds more than, than my normal weight. And so I started doing inter, intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was another part of like the way that I just like sort of monitored my eating. So I would do the walking, I would get up, I would always have coffee. Um, and sometimes like before I realized it, I would eat like some breakfast nut, like uh, I over ate nuts, but then, you know, I, I would like just have coffee and, and gelatin, which is something that I take for my skin. And, um, and I would just be starving until, until noon, <laughs> and then I would let myself eat. But, but there was a lot of like the, the day was based around when I was going to eat, what I was going to eat. Um, and then I was writing. So I, I was like working on my stuff. So I would, I would try to work on my computer and, and write every day something. Um, what else did I do? Oh, uh, we watched TV every night. Like we started just like watching, watching Netflix. We watched all of Netflix. <laughs> like we watched everything. And that was fun. Like I, I didn't, I can't say that I had a bad time. I was fortunate because I wasn't all by myself. I was with my partner and, for, and fortunately we get, we're very compatible. So, and he has an office that's outside of the house. It's behind, um, behind our garage. And so he would, go to work and I would be in the house by myself. Um, and then he would come in and, and I'd feed him and we would eat. So, and also another part of the day was like, I had my very comfortable daytime clothes (laughs) that were like pajamas. And at a certain point I would change from my daytime pajamas into my nighttime pajamas, you know, bathe. And, you know, it was just, it was very weird, but it, but I, it was fun sort of in a way, like, um, mm-hmm. it's it, like I'm we're both kind of introverts and so we both well I don't he doesn't really have social anxiety but I had to kind of have social anxiety in, like at parties or crowds or like going to things and stuff and so I didn't have to go anywhere and so I, I kind of enjoyed that <laughs> enjoyed that I didn't go anywhere um and I got a lot done like because there were, you know, there was really weren't that many distractions unless you wanted to have distractions. Like I could have watched TV all day, but I did save that for nighttime. Um, mm-hmm. So that was kind of the organization of my day. It was like, I ate, I worked out, I cooked, um, and I worked on the computer and try, tried to just like, you know, do things. I, su- I did a lot of submitting. a lot of submitting of of work in fact I I really if you're not a part of women who submit I would love to invite you to to that's right on Facebook the Facebook group yeah but you have to actually like join which entails doing an orientation but I think it's I think the orientations are still on zoom so you might not have to leave your house and you're in in New York yeah Queens 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 okay I'm fairly certain there is a New York chapter, but I can find out if you're, if you're interested. I am. Yeah. I do want to start submitting. It's such a great organization. And you, it's like, I think that for writers, you really have to develop a community. Yes. People that are supportive and cheering you on because it's so solitary. And it's also like women who submit is so great because if there's any, 
competitiveness or jealousy, like I just don't feel it. Like we kind of help each other and we celebrate each other. So you celebrate, you know, somebody else's success and eventually your turn comes along. And so it really does feel like, like such a supportive um, community. And a, a lot of the LA writers, um, from at least in my experience seem to be like that like just mm -hmm. willing to be supportive of each other and we we celebrate each other and we come out to each other's events and or we we do each other's online events and um and I just I really I'm so happy that I joined women who submit I met I've just met the best people great writers and just great women it's such a great community so I'm always trying to recruit people. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, I've been in, interested in it for a while. Did you join during the pandemic? No, no, I joined back hmm. in the beginning. So the uh, one of the original, well, the, the original founder was a woman, a writer, poet named Sochi Julissa Bermejo. Yeah. Sochi, um, Sochi went to Antioch and I went to Antioch. So I knew her before she started Women Who Submit. And then shortly after she started it, um, I knew some of the other women. So Tisha Reichley, um, she, Tisha Reichley Agu Aguilera um, is also, was also instrumental in the beginning. And then um, Dr. Um, Ashaki Jackson, who now runs the offing, she was an original member, Alice Dixon. Um, mm. So I, I was aware of all these women. Um, Ashaki also went to um, Antioch. Mm. Um, and so I joined probably, I joined when it, uh, the same year it started. So I, I think I joined in um, 2010 or, 2011. And I'm curious, in California, were there any Black Lives Matter protests? And did you yeah. get involved? Or, or what did you witness of that? There were definitely Black Lives Matter protests here. Um, I didn't go because I was paranoid about COVID. Um, yeah. But I did participate in like writer events that were in support of Black Lives Matter. So I did um, I did a reading through one of the venues that I typically read through, and it and it was kind of it was dedicated to that. So all the readings were were kind of talking about if if not what was currently going on, um, experiences with racism. Um, so it the theme of it, you know, what was about what was going on. Um, mm -hmm. But I didn't, um, I didn't go myself in person because I really was uh, afraid of, of getting COVID. Um, I watched them, uh, you know, on the computer and certainly supported, but I'm, I'm also older. And I, when I was younger, I did a lot of in-person kind of stuff, but like I, um, I am in my late fifties and I feel like, uh, well, you look amazing. I just have I, to say, <laughs> I, I have the, I have the touch up your appearance. Um, able, so I look less amazing in real life, <laughs> but I'll still take the compliment. Thank you. Um, but, um, now like I'm less afraid and I feel like now I would, I would more than likely show up, but I, I, I told myself, oh, you might get sick and oh, like let the younger people do that. And I think that was coming out of fear because I'm not 
it, you know, I don't have any mobility issues, but I, but I was feeling like, you know, it's younger, younger activists are, you know, it's their moment. Um, mm-hmm. like I've, I've kind of had my moment, but, but now I don't really feel the same way anymore because I, I feel like some of that fear has like moved out of me and I feel like, oh, you know, I could show up, put on comfortable, like I did go out for the women's march, um, you know, for two women's marches um, after Trump was elected, I went to downtown LA and it was, it was a little scary because it was so crowded. You couldn't move. So they were both in, in January. Um, oh, in 2016. Yeah. Like before yeah, yeah, the, yeah. So I yeah. went to those, um, you know, so I don't, it's not like I can't go out and protest, but there was, there was so much else going on in addition, you know, to that. Um, yeah. No, the fear of the virus was pervasive because at least here in New York, I watched like the morning um, governor, Governor Cuomo, his daily briefings. Mm-hmm. And they would I have these- those too. And I was in LA, but they were still, like he calmed me down because I, I watched, made the mistake of watching one of Trump's and I was like, Shit, he's crazy. I just, I was like that, like, made me terrified but yeah like you I I watched Cuomo yeah and just seeing the numbers the daily deaths it was like 200 300 400 500 it was terrifying so yeah I can relate like I was scared to go out to protest for various reasons and also because of the virus is spreading so quickly yeah yeah and early on like I think we were more afraid than we like I'm still wary of catching it but I'm not as terrified like I was kind yeah. of like you know immobilized by my fear of like, afraid of going anywhere like people would ask me to get together to you know just to go for a walk and I wouldn't go yeah like, I didn't see I barely saw you know friends and then eventually I started doing the outdoor dining and I still will only do outdoor dining. I'm not ready to eat indoors. Oh, okay. I'm not ready to be without a mask, like inside, because I still know people who are getting the virus. They're not yeah. getting it as as severely. Um, they're not dying from it, but they're still getting it. Um, there's yeah. still like positive tests, and I don't. I I have no thanks. <laughs> don't want it. No, I I hear you. I was scared of getting it. And I'm curious, um, do you know anyone who got it and sadly passed away or didn't most people, you know, recover? I don't, um, surprisingly. I mean, I, I definitely have friends who have family members who passed away. So one of my closest friends lives in New York and her uncle passed away from COVID. Um, but nobody in my family um, passed away from COVID that I know oh. and none of my close friends, although I, I did have a couple of close friends who had COVID really badly. One was hospitalized and that was terrifying. Mm-hmm. She's, um, she's a woman, she's a, a writer. She was in, she's also in Women Who Submit. And I got a text that she was being admitted to the hospital and I thought she was gonna die. I was, I was just so, so terrified. She got pneumonia, but she, she was okay. She survived and she's fine. She's okay now, but it was, it was very scary um, for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the that was probably the scariest thing that happened. I was nervous about my mother because she's elderly. Like my mother, my mother is elderly, but she doesn't think she is. So she, so I, you know, in the beginning, she didn't want to listen to me at all. I was like, you know, you need to like 
closed this. She, she still works. She has an antique shop. I was like, you need to close the store. She's like, I'm not going to stop my life. I was like, hey, mom, you, you can't do that. You need to have somebody deliver your groceries. Like you shouldn't be outside. And she's like, that's for elderly people. And at the time she was like 88. I was like, that's you. <laughs> you are elderly, but she didn't. She didn't want to hear it. Um, and she was like, fight me. I would get, I couldn't, I just couldn't even talk to her. And then I visited her twice during the pandemic. And I would see her in the store and she's wearing a mask and it's dropping below her nose. And I keep telling her, pull up your mask, put it on your nose. You're not wearing your mask correctly. And she would get so angry. Stop yelling at me. And I'm like, but you're like it makes no what you're doing makes no sense like you have to cover your nose that's the so yeah that was really hard but she did not she did not get COVID and she is still here as far as I know I love that I love that she's 88 and she's like that's for elderly people (laughs) well she still drives she still drives um she's 90 now but she still drives she lives alone um we do not get along at all. Um, and it's very difficult. Um, so yeah, but she's very, very independent, uh, does not want to be told what to do, even if she's wrong. Um, but she's, you know, what can I say? I mean, she's still here and she's 90. I can't really, I'm not in a position to tell her what to do because I'm not 90 I used to try to tell her like what to eat and everything and then at a certain point I was like whatever she's doing is not work (laughs) alive so I don't you know I stopped you know but the mask thing did concern me because I was afraid that if she did get COVID it would be super uncomfortable and that and and I was afraid that it would kill her if she got so anyway so it is better for me not to see her not wearing her mask properly yeah (laughs) that's funny and oh I wanted to bring up the interesting similarity that we both have that both her dads had PhDs in in clinical psychology yeah and and we were just wondering well you know my dad passed away in 2009 so we don't know if they had crossed paths but it'd be interesting to know if they did yeah, I wonder. I wonder if there is a way. Um, they might have had, because um, your dad and my dad both uh, went to the new school for maybe for different things. But um, so my dad got um, got a master's degree in psychology and then uh, the teaching, like master's in education in, um, in teach, to teaching psychology. Like, so that was the one I think that he got at uh, the new school. I, I think mm. I, I might have, a, I have to look at his resume again, but um, but because they were both um, African-American psycho, you know, people studying psychology at the new school, there might've been some alumni groups or something where they cross paths. Um, I went, I took some classes at the new school when I, back in the eighties too. I love the, I love the new school. There was a great film class this guy had, and I can never remember his last name, but he would invite uh, filmmakers to come um, and we would watch their films and then he would interview them. And um, And this was like an ongoing class. You didn't have to be a matriculated student to take this class. Um, and I, t- I took it probably like three times in a row and I just loved it. It's really fun. 
It's a great school. It's interesting. One of my best friends from, we both did our junior year in Spain in high school. Wow. And so I interviewed her daughter. So my, she's, um, I always said she's Italian, but she's more Irish, Polish, American, and a little bit Italian. And so her daughter is now 21. It's like 21 years later, I interviewed her daughter. Oh, and my point. Oh, so my point was she went to the new school and she majored in anthropology. So so it's like so cool to talk to her about this project and about interviewing people because I was worried that by me talking to people, I would be like, um, I don't know, like impacting the the experience. But she said there's like a participatory sort of um, anthropology where the person who's interviewing them is allowed to be heard because that's part oh, of the good. experience. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I just. Where in Spain did you spend that year? Barcelona. Oh, how wonderful that must have been. I, I have not been to Barcelona. I'm dying to go. I, I love it. My friend's daughter is there right now doing exactly that. Oh my right. gosh. Yeah. It's the best city. It's, I, I love the weather. You know, there's the mountains and there's the ocean, there's beaches, and then there's like the cosmopolitan area, the, the, the El Barrio Gotico. It's like, it's great. I. That sounds kind of like LA. We have the mountains, we have the beach, we have the cosmopolitan area. <laughs> Um, but I, I really want to see the Gaudi building. They're gorgeous. I'm, I, I mean, I've seen pictures and I'm, I'm longing to go. Mm. I did go to Madrid um, and I liked Madrid and I went to the south of Spain. I didn't have the greatest time in the south of Spain, but I did love Madrid. It was very sophisticated. But when I, I went to the south of Spain, I had braids in my hair and the, the European tourists, I think, thought that I was Moroccan. And they were really horrible to me. I was in a this this cheesy resort that I booked through American Airlines, and it, it was like it was not that nice, but it was nice enough. But um, but there were a lot of uh, European tourists, and they would fr- they would literally like come up to me and frown in my face. And I think that it was because of the braids. I'm I'm not sure if they thought I was a prostitute or what. Oh, like yeah. it was just, but I was definitely one of the only people of color, the other person of color mm-hmm. was the man I was with who I ended up marrying. Um, but we were the only two people of color, but he didn't have like anything that announced himself in an ethnic way. But I had these long braids, they were like down to my hips. Um, and yeah, they did not like that. But in Madrid, nobody paid gave my braids a second look, they didn't care. But for some reason, this particular area they did not want me there. That's so that a, yeah, that's upsetting. I was called Americana a lot. And in in hindsight, in talking to people, I've, I've learned that there are a lot of a lot of um, Africans and probably Moroccans because Morocco is the north of right, Africa. Right. Yeah. And so to distinguish me from uh, these immigrants, they're like, oh, Americana, like she's not here to I don't know whatever opinion they have about people's jobs or something. Is that- right. It's like, so Americana was a compliment. That was a good thing. It was like yeah. you're better than these others. So I, I, I do yeah. think they thought I was Moroccan. I, you know, I look with my braids and my, you know, my skin was browner than theirs. So yeah. Oh, it's unfortunate how people treat people just. Yeah. I had never experienced that in in the same way. Like I definitely got 
negative looks where I was, where I grew up, but they, but these people literally, like I was sitting at the, in the breakfast room and they would come up to the, come up to me and cross their arms and frown in my face while I'm eating my breakfast. Uh And I don't know them, you know, it was, it was awful. But as I said, in Madrid, no problem. Like Uh no one cared about my braids. So it was very odd. But I never, I've never been back and have no desire to go back there. It was yeah. like supposed to be Marbella, but I think I was out actually a little bit outside of Marbella. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a bullfight like uh, somewhere oh. on TV, I think. But mm-hmm. I had, I realized like I'm not a bullfight person. It's really hard for me to watch. Yeah. I respect the art of it, but it was so painful for me to watch. Yeah, the bull, it makes me sad. Yeah. But yeah I was excited to, to hear that your dad was a, a psychologist and mine was and yeah. I'll do did some you ever, did you happen to ever know any of your dad's patients or was that like very separate no he he worked for the veterans administration and he no I never met them because he counseled um his specialty was post-traumatic stress dis- stress okay. disorder so no I met all of my dad not I'm not every single one but I I lived in my dad's apartment for like a year in his like where his office was and so I met all his patients um and you know my dad was old school and the Freudian um type of psychologist like back in the day it wasn't the same as now where like you would you know, you wouldn't have an office in your living space. It would be uh-huh. now everything would be very separate and people's identities would be um, protected. But when I was growing up, um, my dad would always talk about how Martin Scorsese had been his patient. And I, and so he told me this, he didn't tell me anything about Martin Scorsese's um, problems or anything personal like that, but, but he would talk about Martin Scorsese and, Martin Scorsese was then at NYU and my dad's office was right at NYU. And I like took that in and I was like, I'm going to NYU. And I did, like I went to NYU and it was really, it was really because of that connection. It was like in my mind, somehow I, I like made it so like, well, I could go to NYU and be like, you know, like maybe maybe some Martin Scorsese will find me. I can be that person's engineer because I was, I was an actress. Um, and, but that was like, it changed the trajectory of my life because that was, you know, I was so impressed with that because I saw in the seventies, I saw um, Taxi Driver and, you know, his other movies, but it was started with Taxi Driver and my sister loved Robert De Niro. So I was just like, I wanted to somehow be connected, you know, to them. And I, I did end up meeting Spike Lee when he was at NYU, um, but mm-hmm. he, he did not make me his De Niro. <laughs> but I was in school days. <laughs> I, I did oh. a couple of things with Spike. Um, but That's he, so neat. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, this is what I love about talking to people. Like, I learned that we all have so much more in common than we realize, especially when we start talking about our ancestry. Mm -hmm. And I find with a lot of Black Americans, like on my mom's side, there's the the Irish uh, and on the Jamaican side. And I haven't done 
the ancestry on oh, my dad. But um, I do want to do it. I do know that his grandmother was full-blooded Indigenous American, but I don't know the tribe, so I I need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Like that's one of the things. To the whole Indigenous thing. Um, what what state was she from? See, I know my dad grew up in Philadelphia, but I don't know if she met like his his grandfather on the Trail of Tears. Like, I don't know if they had they were kicked off their land and then they met on, on the migrating up north. I I don't know. Well, I think it, you'll see. Like, if you if it turns out you have like twenty five percent indigenous blood, then you'll know she was full blooded. But you might not. It was a lot of like. Everybody says they have Native American. <laughs> oh no, she yeah, she was. <laughs> you met, you knew her, so you knew she was. Yeah, no, my dad. He always talks about how long her hair was, and but why? You know. Why wouldn't you know the tribe though? Because she did she not know what tribe? Oh no, he told me. I I don't remember. He told me, but I. Okay. But was she a member? Like, was she a, a member of the tribe? Was she still like enrolled in, in the tribe? So she had tribal benefits and everything? See, as a child, I didn't ask my dad these questions. He was kind of an imposing figure. So I did not question him. <laughs> you know, but when, when she didn't live on the reservation or anything. I don't know. You, did, you, did you grow up knowing her? Or did yeah. she die when you were little? I remember as I was a baby okay. and I, I was probably like one or two and I just remember an image, but that's all I remember. Okay. I, it turns out we have Native American ancestry that we did not know of. And this was in, um, so there was a, there was a number of indigenous um, Americans who were sent to Bermuda to work in the salt mines and one of our ancestors was native. I, I have like two, 2% or 2.1% native ancestry, but my grandmother never talked about this. But in 2006, a relative in New Zealand contacted me and said that he found me and my dad, like through the, through the Bermuda, like he contacted the Bermuda archives and spoke to somebody there and got these names and numbers and contacted my dad. And he tried to tell us that we were native, that we, I was like, no, we're black. And he's like, no, no, your, your grandmother was native American and, and your great grandparents were, well, your great grandfather was Native American. And I was like, no, I knew my grandmother and she was black. She was mixed race. She was a mixed race black woman. He just wouldn't believe it, wouldn't believe it. And it was the first we had ever heard of this. I didn't know anything about that. And then finally we did this um, big reunion in Bermuda and he, the man from New Zealand came and we were all black. And so he finally like had to, like, he did not want to admit it, but what had happened was his ancestor, his either grandfather or great grandfather was my grandmother's uncle. And his name was Edward Darrell. And he left Bermuda, went to Australia and told he had a family and he, he did not tell anybody he had African ancestry. This was oh. in the 1800s. And he told that family that the reason for his coloring was he had some Aboriginal ancestry. And so that, that family, that whole family line, like generation after generation believed that they were of Aboriginal descent. 
Wow. Don't have a drop of Aboriginal blood. But then he left that family and went to New Zealand and had another family. And that's the, the, the um, guy who called was from that line. Never told them that he had any African ancestry either. He told that family that he had some Native American. And so that's where that guy got that from. Um, and he found, he found uh, the United States listed on, um, on the, somebody, one of the children's death certificates or something or birth certificates. And so he realized that, that Edward had some connection to the States, but still didn't figure out until eventually figured out that it was Bermuda. And then he just, we couldn't disabuse him of this idea that we were native and, you know, we're this much native, like way back <laughs> there's like one you know native ancestor um, oh wow but yeah oh. so interesting like you know i love hearing about ancestry <laughs> mm. oh this has been so wonderful oh i'm here in california i i really want to visit california at some point I don't know when, but I love sun and warm beaches. Oh, you would like so. it here. I think you would. I think you'd enjoy it. And did you get to learn um, to speak Spanish fluently? Yeah, I yeah, I'm fluent That's in awesome. Spanish. Yeah, I have a degree, uh, bachelor's degree in Spanish literature. Yeah. That's so fantastic. Well, if you can speak Spanish, um, that will actually, you will enjoy LA because there's a lot of Spanish speakers here. Yeah, I need to visit. I need to. This is so wonderful. I'm Maybe just... apply for jobs out here. You never know. Right? Why not? Yeah, I don't know what I would do. I don't know. But yeah. Well, teach, like teach and write? Is that what you do there? <laughs> that's, that's a whole other story. Yeah. Okay. But you don't know. <laughs> you, you write, do you write fiction or nonfiction? Um, uh, both. So my MFA thesis was a, a young adult novel that Wow. Took place, it took place in Dominican Republic. It was like this um, future, wow. I guess, um, speculative fiction is what they're calling it now. Well, you know, but, one of the one of the women who's on our Zoom group, Elise Strongman, um, she is like the advisor for the journal at Spelman, and they're looking for Afrofuturism submissions. Wow. So I wonder if you might want to consider submitting like a, a chapter from your novel. That's a good idea. Yeah. Have you met Elise? She's she's on once in a while. She lives in Atlanta. I um, think once I met I met her. Yeah. The journal is um Aunt Chloe, a journal of uh something candor. The name escapes me at the moment. But Aunt Chloe is is um is a reference to Toni Morrison. Like her oh. Chloe, I think was maybe her real name or her original first name. Yeah, yeah. A yeah. journal of artful candor, that's it. Aunt Chloe, <laughs> colon, a journal of artful candor. Um, but you're actively looking now for Afrofuturism things. So if you Google um, Aunt Chloe, a journal of artful candor, um, you might find like what their, their um, submission guidelines are. And then just write maybe, maybe, or maybe even just email or text Elise and see if she, if they're still open to submissions. That's such a great idea. Yeah. Why not? Cause it's just sitting on my computer. Yeah. Um, Did you ever publish the, have the, the whole novel published? Oh, no one would take it. I think I sent it to like eight literary agents and five publishing houses and 
they said, oh, this is great, but it's not our. But how long ago was that? That was during this 2020 when all the publishers wanted um, Black writers because Black Lives okay. Matter was happening. Okay. And then it kind of died down. <laughs> I would say don't give up. I would say um, take a look at it, maybe get some feedback and see if there's like any, if you get an, any advice you agree with, like where you might tweak or something. And then I would send it, I would send it out again, either to agents or there's lots of small presses. There's so many small presses, but before you decide that it's not going to get published, you should submit it to like every small press like that will, that's willing to read it before you give up on it. Cause you took the time, you put the time in and you never know, like it, it, it could very well get published. Check okay. out um, poets and writers and see if you can see like a, at, you know, put in the prompt um, publishing publishing houses and and see what happens if you put in um, uh, African American speculative fiction. Uh, have you did you submit it to Akashic Books? No, I don't know about they, that. They they take um, they take speculative stuff from African American writers. There's a, a really great writer, um, Maroa Yadide, I think is how you say her name, and her book um creatures of passage i think was the most recent book and that's i'm not sure if it's afrofuturism but it's it's definitely uh, of a speculative nature and akashic published that and it's shortlisted for the women's prize um and uh, I, yeah i'll look into it so the i think the issue is that i'm not so I have a degree in Spanish literature. I speak Spanish. I've studied Spanish. And so the novel takes place in the Dominican Republic because I live there. Mm -hmm. And the lead character is a, a Black Dominican woman. And so I think that because I'm not Dominican, the publishers are like, oh, this is great. Where are you from? And, then I, and I'm thinking we're having a conversation but I think they're vetting me for authenticity. Um, and then they're like, oh, you're Jamaican? Oh, you're African-American? Oh, thank you so much. But, you know? but did you tell them that you lived in the Dominican Republic for a long time? Yeah, it's in my query letter that I live there, that I have this degree in Spanish. And so for a while, I struggled with thinking I should just make the lead character a reflection of me, even though it's a fiction, make her a Black American in the D Dominican Republic, but that would be a different story. So I don't know. I don't know what to do. Yeah, I understand. I don't, I don't have advice on that because I don't want to tell you, well, you know, write it with a pseudonym and pretend to be Dominican. I don't think that's <laughs> good advice. Um, but if it's a good book um, and you it wouldn't be the first time somebody's written from a perspective that is not them, but if, but clearly you, you spent time in the Dominican Republic. So you're writing from a, from a perspective of where you have actually observed and feel a kinship and you, and I'm going to presume that you've done the work ne necessary. You're not writing a caricature of yeah. a Dominican person. Um, I don't see the, I don't know I don't see the problem in it so I don't know, like, so, I don't know. like they're black too right so it, it's just the language they, I mean I guess you know there's there's obviously the whole cultural, there's colorism you studied the culture like and yeah. you are like that's your that's the work that you do is like study 
another culture. And so I still yeah. want to up on it. Yeah. I, I don't, it, it, do you feel like it's a good book? Oh, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, like I wrote a book that I would love that, you know, like Toni Morrison said, write the book that you wish existed. Like that's what I did. I mean, I love it. How about the book, the publisher, um, uh, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' father, Paul Coates, he has a publishing company out of Baltimore. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. There's got to be some place. Somewhere that. You just yeah. need somebody to read it and fall in love with it. And then the story that you tell in doing PR would include, this is a writer who has spent a portion of her life in the Dominican Republic and studied the culture and went there to embrace the culture and study the culture so that it's clear that you're not like, it's not the same as somebody who just decide like like this recent book that came out about something about black feminism and there's like a oh. picture of a black woman on the cover and it turns out it's a white like you're not doing that yeah well yeah I still have it it's 150 pages and I've been trying to get up the the courage to rewrite it with like a black American as a lead, but it's a different story. So I just haven't done it yet because then it it would but, change but everything. Just, just maybe don't give up quite yet on the story you wrote because there was there was something that inspired you, like living in in the mm -hmm. Dominican Republic and and stuff that you saw, and you wanted to explore that character. Um, just don't give up so soon. Like I, I feel like all you need to do is a bit more research on other opportunities. Like five, five rejections from publishers is nothing. Like there, there are like 3000 small presses in this. Country. Oh, I didn't know that. Lots, lots of small presses agents. That's harder. Um, mm -hmm. And they're always looking for a reason to say no, um, <laughs> but you might still find an agent or maybe you publish this one with a small press and your next book, you you've already learned this lesson so your next book you make it easier on yourself and you maybe write from a perspective that's that more like you um but but then that can still you know bring readers back to your first book which you love the book you wanted it to be that character i i don't i i don't think you should give up i don't i don't think you should let the like outside influence dictate that this isn't your story to tell because mm -hmm. you went there to learn this story and you yeah. it and you told it and I, I do feel like that's okay. I appreciate your feedback and you are right five publishers is not a lot of rejections because from what I hear <laughs> So like wait until like you should try to to submit to like 150 a year for a couple of years oh. before you give up like submit to a lot of of small presses there's a lot of them there's university presses like maybe there's a, a university press that would be right like you know that also publishes people like you who have been in academia and who have studied cultures that aren't theirs, but have mm. created works, like check out those, you know, before you give up. Oh. There's, lots of other, there's lots of other options. 
and that you know that may not translate into like a big book deal where that's gonna with the book that's gonna make you famous but it's a but it's a it's part of your body of work that you're building and it's one of your creations it's one of your babies and I don't think you should just like stick it in the closet <laughs> to the soon you gave up too quickly try it again go back <laughs> Thank you. That's such great advice. I will. I'm glad that you said that. I didn't even think of those options. So I will. I will. Good. Well, if nothing else comes out of that, I'm glad like you will like give your book some, some attention and try to get it out there again. And I can't wait to read your book. Is it out? Um, Light Skin Light Gone, Gone to Waste is not out, but uh, Homegoing is out and available. And it's also yes. on audio. And my first book, um, this book is also available, uh, Remedy for a Broken Angel. Oh, such beautiful titles. Thank you. And Remedy for a Broken Angel, the protagonist is uh, Puerto Rican and Bermudian. And uh, I'm not Puerto Rican, but I wrote her as oh. Puerto Rican. Her name is Artemisa Reyes, and Artemisa was my grandmother's name. So it's her mm. mother was Bermudian and her father was uh, Puerto Rican. Oh, this is, I'm going to buy it on Amazon. It's beautiful. Well, I'm going to buy it. I shouldn't say it. I shouldn't endorse <laughs> any companies. Well, it's beautiful. Remedy for a Broken Angel. When is um, Lights and Gone to Waste coming out? October 15th. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's, that's a, it's published by a university press, the um, University of Georgia Press. Oh, UGA. <laughs> I lived in Atlanta for a few years. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Congratulations. UGA? It's close to Atlanta, but not in Atlanta, right? Or it's not that Right. It's a drive. It's a nice college town. Okay. Oh, this has been so wonderful. I learned so much about you. We're in a writer's group, but when we meet on Zoom, we write. We don't actually talk about ourselves. I think I'm coming to New York in November to do a book event. So maybe you could join me. Oh, I would love to. Yes, we can meet in real life. Yeah, Absolutely. it's going to be um, at the Center for Fiction. In um, Brooklyn. Yeah, on November 10th. And I'm trying to schedule another event. Um, there's a bookstore in Montclair, New Jersey that I'm I'm interested in. in oh. at. So I'm trying to put together a couple of events out that way. But um, but that one I would love I'd love to meet up. Yeah, the Center for Fiction. I'll invite my MFA friends because okay. we like we love the Center for Fiction. That'd be awesome. I'm gonna. I have. Send me your your email address, and I'm because I'm gonna um, I'm gonna in, like personally ask everybody to come. Yeah. I find like when you do that, when you just send like an announcement, like a Facebook announcement or something, people don't feel like you're actually inviting them specifically. But I do like to like ask people specifically, like write to them individually and say, would you please come or save this date? Um, Yeah. (laughs) So I'll include you on my list. I will. And congratulations. I'm so happy for you and your your publishing. You are inspiring all my writer friends and writers out there to keep submitting. So thank you. Good. Yes. And join women who submit if you're a a woman. Um, It's also open to um, 
to non-binary or people who identify as anyone who identifies as a woman. So mm -hmm. you're welcome to join the um, women who submit. So I'll, I'll send you a link um, to the, to the website and that should take you to information about how to become a member. But I, I think that it, that being part of that group will really inspire you because you'll be in community with other writers, like also doing the submission process, other people who have had this, the same experience, like submitting, maybe didn't get published, but then try again. And, um, you know, you just don't give up. Don't give oh, up. Thank you. Well, this has been wonderful hearing about beautiful California during the, the pandemic. Thank you, Tony Ann. Oh, it was my so pleasure. Much. Thanks for having me. And I'll see you on the Zoom. In the Absolutely. Zoom. Okay. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation on this episode of Black America and COVID, an oral history project. If you enjoyed the episode, then please give it five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. The more five stars the podcast has, the more visible it is, the more access I have to people who would like to share their story living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you are a Black American and you would like to share your experience with me, then email me at sonykillaroo at gmail.com, the emails in the show notes of the podcast, or direct message me through my Instagram account, Black America and COVID, all one word, all lowercase. If you are a non-Black American and you would like to memorialize the life of a Black American sadly lost, during the COVID-19 pandemic, then email me as well. This episode was written, produced, and audio engineered by me, Sonia Jean Killebrew, podcast host and executive producer. Thanks for listening to my oral history project, Black America and COVID.